time, my friend. It has been a long time coming. Thank you for joining the Free Your Energy podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sylvester. I feel like this is a long time coming, so I'm excited to really, I don't know, open up and chop it up with you and hopefully, I don't know, have a good conversation that supports other people on their path. Yes, sir. First and foremost, how is your mental health? Honestly, it's pretty good. I feel very fortunate that, um, you know, I've, I've spent years growing in meditation, particularly in Vipassana meditation. I started back in 2012. And then around 2015, I got really serious and started being able to meditate um, daily at home. So putting all of that time into it um, has helped me develop a sense of like mental balance and stability and clarity because like things have definitely been crazy. And, um, you know, in the world with all the things that are happening, you know, this period of quarantine and um, especially I'm based in New York City. So a lot of my friends, I mean, I had a family member who passed away. A lot of my friends have had family members who passed away. So um, the effect of this is very wide and um, there's a lot of grief in the air, but being able to just, you know, allow myself to feel whatever it is that is that's arising and also understand that all these things are impermanent, you know, nothing was really ever meant to last. Um, and knowing that it wasn't meant to last just allows me to be so much more present. Um, so I feel pretty good and, and honestly, just really, really fortunate to have had a meditation practice. Very, very glad to hear that on the side of you uh, having the practice that is empowering you, giving you what you need to, to kind of stay strong and very sorry to hear about passing of uh, one of your family members and just, you know, the whole community of the world is, is being impacted in a different way. And I know with you being in New York, uh, man, that is, that's the upper center for the United States. Definitely. That's the upper center. Um, but you said you started the practice in 2012. So take me back to your childhood. Did you have a meditation practice at all in your childhood? And what, what was your childhood like when you were, let's just say between the ages of five and 12, where were you at? What was going on in your, in your life and your family's life? Yeah, definitely. So, so I was actually born in, in, uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador. So that's um, the country of Ecuador in South America. It's right underneath Colombia. And um, but my family decided to immigrate to the United States in uh, 1992. So I came to the U.S. when I was about four and a half years old. So during that time, especially between five to 12, um, my family had just moved to Boston. That's the city that I ended up really growing up in. And um, and we were very poor. You know, we there was a it, it was a big struggle to um, survive in America. Um, you know, thriving wasn't even really an option because it was more so just trying to deal with the reality of, you know, being Latino in the United States and also just being poor and trying to keep everything going. So I remember feeling the pressure of my mom and my dad just working so much, you know, trying to, they worked so hard for, you know, the little money that they were able to get. My mom used to clean houses. My, my dad, um, he worked in the supermarkets and they were, you know, what today we consider essential workers. So it's really interesting the way things have switched up, but they were doing this work and, you know, great honorable work, but at the same time, it brought little pay to the household. So I remember the the friction that the two of them felt in just trying to keep everything afloat, um, especially during that period of five to 12, because there was a transition when my brother and I, um, when we became teenagers, we both started working. 
And when we started working, um, we were able to bring in a little money as well. So my parents didn't have to worry about, you know, buying us clothes or anything like that, because we, we were able to supply, our, you know, some of our own things. Um, and as time kept going, you know, my, my parents, they received a lot more support from my brother and I, and um, that's really changed their situation. And seeing the difference now that, you know, they have less money problems, they have a lot more harmony between the two of them. Whereas when I was really young, um, you know, they would fight, but it wasn't because of a lack of love between each other, but more of a, a structural problem. Do you get what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. So when you became a teenager, where were you studying your high school at? Were you still in Boston at the time? Yeah, we were still in Boston. Um, I went to this uh, this magnet school that you had to test into called uh, Boston Latin Academy. It was in this place called Roxbury and um in Boston, and it was a good school. Um, you know, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a really well funded school, but it was full of a lot of other you know young people who were really bright. So it was cool, you know, being in a really really diverse environment. We had you know people from all over, you know, from all over Asia, all over the Caribbean, you know, from literally all all over like the country. It was a, it was a good like microcosm of what America looks like um, in that one school, and it was nice growing up there and just understanding how, um, I don't know, I feel like we were all big dreamers back then. And I remember like for, for most of us, like we were all very, very poor. So our goal was to just like, you know, come out of poverty to like get educated, to try to try to do our best to do right by our parents. Cause most of us had immigrant parents as well. Um, but yeah, that, that period was, it was a really fun time. And it was also a time that was really empowering because I started working during that time. I got introduced to the world of activism in Boston. And that was actually like, you know, the main jobs that I had there was working in nonprofits. And um, during that time, I got to see really how powerful people could be when they came together around a common cause. And um, and that kind of lit the fire in me to to make change. But a lot of that change was like external change. And it was really amazing to see that, you know, we really can change things. Like we, I remember we would change the schools that we were um, organizing inside of, you know, making sure that they had the adequate like resources that we needed, or we would change different rules and guidance counseling, or, you know, like the, the transportation system, we would really make things happen. But um, I remember through all of those victories, I still, you know, I still didn't feel great inside of me. Um, Like I would be happy, but it would be a very momentary happiness. And then I'd still felt this like, you know, I would, I'd always lean into, um, sadness and anxiety and would always feel this, like, you know, getting dragged down by my own patterns and my own reactions. But I wasn't aware of that stuff until it became worse when I was in college. So in high school, what do you think you're probably aware of it now, but what was causing you that feeling? in high school, that, that feeling of being dragged down the you know, the sadness, like always returning to sadness, like what was causing it? Um, you know, it's interesting because I think there are different degrees of conditioning, you know, there's definitely trauma, there's definitely hurt. And then there's, there's also the, the more subtle conditioning of everyday reactions where they're not as big and as, or as intense as, you know, real hard trauma. 
So I think I'm more so on the other end of the spectrum where it's like a little, you know, I, I kept leaning into sadness and always had this inclination towards sadness and anxiety, but it wasn't like any one particular moment kind of really stands out. It's more so like an accumulation of all of these moments where over time, you know, I ended up developing these patterns that sort of leaned me in in that direction. And um, I didn't notice how deep that inclination and how strong it had gotten until later on, until I was able to be a little more self-observant when I got a little older. But I wouldn't say there was any particular cause. I think the most defining cause um, that really like drive, that really kind of drove me into activism, that drove me into wanting to make the world better. And that also drove me into seeing that, you know, I had internal things that I had to work on was, was poverty itself. Because I think a lot of people, you know, poverty is also very traumatizing and it's also very, um, it'll, it'll mold your internal world because that's a pretty interesting situation. It doesn't get talked about enough in the United States. Um, but you know, I was lucky, like I had really good parents. They listened to me, they gave me freedom. Um, but at the same time, like the things outside of the family world were very difficult. So when you're in high school and you start working, was it a push from your parents? Did your parents say, hey, we, we kind of need you to, to work to get, you know, to help out with the family or to at least have the money to take care of yourself? And or was it more of a kind of a responsibility that you kind of just felt like, OK, I need to do this? Like, where was the initiation for you to work? <laughs> yeah, I have this. There was this really clear moment where I would think I was about 13 and a half years old and I go to my mom and I'm like, mom, I want a cell phone. And she looks at me and she's like, you're bugging. You know, there's no way, there's no way we can can afford that. Um, And she was like, you know, if you get your own job, then you can do whatever you want with that money. So that was the one that kind of, that just like kicked the door open in my mind. and was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, I could make it happen for myself. And that's sort of a, a transition from like, you know, being a child to being like to young adulthood and just kind of understanding, okay, I don't have to just get everything from my parents. I can do things for myself. Um, and that kind of, I remember the first job that I had was like, um, like cleaning up around the church that I used to go to. And I would, I would get like a hundred or $200, um, you know, for like a, for, for some work that I would do. And then after that, I started getting, I got my first real job in the, in the nonprofit world. Um, when I was about 14 and that, um, you know, through that, I, I felt really empowered and just started, um, you know, I got my cell phone. I started, you know, getting myself the things that I wanted, what's also support my parents here and there. And, um, but I think the main relief was that because I could take care of myself, my parents had, they were able to, to, you know, take care of the whole family better. Mm. That's powerful. You know, I actually have a very, very similar story that really mirrors exactly what you went through for you. <laughs> it was a cell phone. For me, I grew up in Chicago. So being in Chicago, you know, the Chicago Bulls are winning championships and everyone, you know, we were in the trading cards and basketball. And so I went to my dad and I said, hey, dad, you know, I really want to get some Jordan basketball shoes. Can you can you buy me the new Jordan shoes? And at this time, Michael Jordan is the most iconic celebrity in the world, not just in sports, but in the world. And so, you know, all the kids wanted like that. I want to be like Mike slogan. And that was real, like especially being in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your mom said you're buggy. My dad literally said you're tripping. (laughs) (laughs) Exact, exact same energy. He's like, you're tripping. Yeah. And um, 
he goes, do you know how much those shoes cost? I was like, yeah, they're only $200. And this is, you know, me as a, like, I'm a young salesperson. I'm just like selling the idea. I'm yeah. like, yeah, they're only $200. My dad goes, only, only $200. <laughs> and it was so funny. And he's like, okay. He's like, sit down. Let me tell you a story. And he just, I remember that night so vividly. He just gave me all these stories about what my grandparents had to go through and what their grandparents had to go mm-hmm, through mm-hmm. Um, just to, just for me to even be where I am. He gave me like this whole like 80 year lineage story. And literally it started from me asking for Jordans. Mm-hmm. And so I woke up the next day and I was like, okay, I need to, I need to work. I need to get a job or something. And so I went the next day and I was like, you know, thank you for giving me that really long story. But can I get a work permit so I can get my own money? Mm-hmm. And he was like, absolutely. And I feel like there was such a such a freedom, freedom moment there, as you say, you know, you just kind of kind of figure out you can do things for yourself. And so you mentioned college. Why did you go to college? All right. That's a question that's very yeah, important yeah. to me. I care about education, and I don't necessarily care so much about formal education. I care about individuals being educated from what's going on inside of them and around them, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And and so for me, I didn't go to college with the right intentions. I want to know why you went to college. What was going on in your life at 17, 18 years old? Where did you go? Talk to me about college. Um, So when I was, uh, I would say the summer after my 10th grade year in high school, um, I had matured a lot and I started, you know, beyond wanting my own cell phone. I started really analyzing my situation with my parents and just that it was around that time that I started noticing, okay, this is how poverty had affected us. And, um, and I have a small family, you know, we, we immigrated from Ecuador. So the majority of my family still lives there, but, um, you know, it's me, my mom and my dad, my brother, and my little sister who was born in the U S and we, you know, it hit me that it was like, okay, well, I want to do right by my family as well. And I want to make sure to do my part to take care of them. So I was like, how can I make money? And I asked myself that question that summer. And there were only two answers. You know, it was you either sell drugs or you, or you go to college. And, um, and that to me was like, okay, well, those are the two options I have in front of me. Cause I've, I've had, you know, I've had family members who've gone down that route, you um, who've, you know, sold drugs and um, ended up going to jail. And um, that is like, you know, was a big aspect of my conditioning. Like I saw the, the potential of that. And then that was like, it hit me that, you know, that's not what I want to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to like live a life of danger or anything like that. So I was like, well, my only option is to go to college. So when I got back to school, to high school, um, junior year, I just started putting in the effort that I was that I was like not putting in at all, you know, in the period before that. So I started like getting straight A's and um, basically just got like all of my things set up so that my applications could be good. And then I ended up applying and going to this school called Wesleyan University in Connecticut, um, which I, th- I think is a relatively good school. And we and, you know, I had a good time there. I, I ended up learning a lot. I had no real like clear vision of what I wanted to do. Um, I was thinking that I would probably go into business. And um, so I ended up majoring in economics, but I actually found during that time that I had a real passion for history. 
and uh, for psychology too. That's the first time I was exposed to like the mind and like, you know, I'd read a lot of like Freud and a lot of psychoanalysis. And um, I think that started showing me that you could understand the mind. And to me, that was pretty exciting. But um, I ended up going to college literally because I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be poor and I don't want to see my parents struggling for the rest of their lives. So I need to do something about that. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. So you saw it as a way, really as a pathway to connect yourself to opportunity in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. I, I think that's a really like healthy uh, intention. You know, me and you, we both preach to, you know, our readers about intentions and, mm-hmm. and, and having a direction. I think that's a great intention. And I'm really glad that you had that clarity. So between high school and college, uh, did you have any uh, romantic relationships that were significant to your life uh, at those points? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, my like the, the first like my first love, like when I was little um, during my high school years, um, it was a really formative relationship. And it was also like, you know, looking back on it, it was a relationship that I could have just handled so much better if I had better known myself. You know, like I was so oblivious to myself at the time that, um, you know, I wasn't able to like support the harmony in the relationship or to like really listen to another person selflessly. And there was never like intentional harm that was caused, but there was, there's so much unintentional harm, if you know what I mean, that we can cause each other in relationships where, you know, because I don't know myself well, and because I don't, and, you know, if I can't know myself well, then it's going to be very hard for me to know you well. Um, then it's just easy as imperfect people to cause each other unintentional harm. Um, so I think that was like a pretty formative relationship. And it's something that I look back on as, you know, I wish I had done that better. But there, at the same time, there was no way that I would have known because I was, I was, you know, I was so young. But now, um, you know, I'm married now. And to me, that feels like, you know, I'm glad I had those experiences and I'm glad that I had the motivation to do better because now um, my wife and I have, you know, a pretty harmonious relationship and we, you know, are always striving to take any moment where we do have conflict to really get to better understand each other and really be able to practice listening and to be able to practice patience and to practice compassion and um, those moments, you know, where, whenever there is conflict, they actually end up resulting in such a greater understanding of each other that we can actually love each other better. But, um, but it's interesting because like having those young relationships, I think, um, and there were two relationships in particular that really stand out. Um, one when I was younger and one when I was older that, um, were just so, you know, beautiful and formative, but also just full of like a lack of understanding, like I was saying. That makes sense. And I definitely, if you don't mind sharing, I would I would like to ask you about your relationship with your wife, but I don't want to skip some of the crucial parts of your life. So let's uh let's let's benchmark your your marriage and let's come back sure, to sure, it. Yeah. Um and let's kind of get more of your timeline because I really want my my listeners to just really understand your story and just kind of how you evolved. And I really just appreciate you just kind of explaining your story. And, and so when you got out of college, did you stay in Connecticut? W- what happened for you next? Where were you at mentally? What was going on in your life? Then? Uh-huh. So me- mentally, it was a mental disaster. <laughs> that, that was kind of my, um, my, 
you know, like for my personal journey, that was the breaking point before I really started developing actual self-awareness. Um, what year, what year, what year are we talking? So I graduated in, um, 2010 and, um, and I came out of school, but during that time to just like backtrack a little, you know, I started just partying a lot. I started going out a lot. I was always, you know, um, with friends and things just started kind of multiplying, like, because I didn't have any tools to deal with any sort of anxiety or sadness inside of me it felt like everything just started multiplying really quickly. And then when I started partying a lot and a lot, and I started doing, I started, you know, dabbling in cocaine, just doing, trying different drugs. And um, I ended up in this cycle where I was like constantly seeking pleasure and pleasure in the sense of like, you know, partying, doing drugs, or like thinking that I'm having a good time with friends and like laughing all of the time. When in reality, I was just using these as opportunities to run away from myself. Um, And over time, you know, that's a four year period where I'm like, you know, strengthening these habits that are just not serving me well. And I end up leaving, you know, finishing college, I graduate and all of that. And then the party is basically over, right? Like college is gone. Everybody has returned to their homes. I moved back to Boston and I end up feeling like such an intense angst and agitation that um that I don't you know I can't quite put my finger on it until like the summer of 2011 I remember one night I was like partying again and um this is a year after I had graduated and I just like I had never felt so bad in my life like I was so sick and intoxicated and inebriated and I felt like I was having a heart attack like physically like physically ill and um and you know, I was so unhealthy at that moment, like definitely the unhealthiest I've ever been, um, that I kind of just hit that rock bottom point. And I am being like on the floor and just like realizing like how much I had, you know, moved away from the path that I was on before. Because when I was like younger and I was about 16, 17, 18, like I was trying to do right by the world. Like I wanted to support people through the organizing and activism efforts that I was putting in. And I realized that when when I started going to college and because I had never dealt with my inner world, you know, like therapy still wasn't a thing that wasn't as popular, at least in my world then. And I didn't have, you know, like I said, any sort of tools like these internal problems became bigger and bigger and bigger and they needed my attention. And it wasn't until I hit rock bottom that summer of 2011 that I realized that, you know, I had spent most of my life lying to myself like just literally running away from myself. And that was the biggest, biggest shift was that I started from that day forward, you know, I threw away the drugs. Like I never, you know, since then I never once done cocaine or like anything that was, you know, nothing, nothing like that at all. And I think it was around uh, 2015 or 2014, I stopped doing all drugs altogether. Um, And like, you know, I haven't, I don't like, I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't do anything like that. And it was a process to get there, but I, you know, felt like, okay, what was the number one thing that's missing? You know, why, why was I looking to, to be intoxicated? And I realized that I couldn't even sit with my own angst. Like I couldn't like be with myself. And that's when I started developing like honesty as a practice inside of myself and started just, you know, checking in. Like it was whenever I wanted to run away from myself, I'd ask myself why, 
you know, what's happening. And then I would kind of just like, you know, white knuckle it and kind of do my best to try to be with myself as much as I could. And that whole year felt like very big preparation. Um, that I mean, that year too, I started like working out, I started eating healthier, I started just doing these like fundamental things that um, in the summer of 2012, I felt like that all of that prepared me. And then I went away to my first 10 day meditation course. So there's really like a clear demarcation in your story where there's different internal feelings or different, right? It's like you have your youth, you have the poverty, and then you have like this high school phase where there's just this spark that's inside of you and Mm -hmm. this spark telling you like, hey, you know, you need to help people. You need to be there for people. You need to be there for your family. And so it's like you kind of follow that spark, but it's hard to. It's like you can't even ignite the spark mm-hmm. because of the feelings that the, the anxiety you were dealing with and like the sadness, like that pattern of sadness you kept returning to. Mm-hmm. And then again, you're you're inspired to to be better. So you go to college. But then once you get to college, the what college is, it, you know, it's a lot of people trying to find themselves. Exactly. And then there's the the drug world, the drinking world, the you know, everything that comes with college, I went to college as well. And it was, I mean, I mean, every weekend it's party over here. You just see cocaine, you see girls on Molly, people getting so drunk, they can't stand up. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, like for me, it was, so I didn't drink until my, both of my parents were alcoholics. So for me, it was like, why would I want to drink when I see what rage, I see what anger, I see what hostility can do, especially inside of a person who's under the influence of alcohol. So I get to college. My first two years, I don't drink. I play, I'm playing football as well. So, you know, I'm with the football players. I'm with a group of people who, like me, 18, 19, trying to find themselves. So everyone's drinking. And I just stayed strong. I'm like, no, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. So finally, it was New Year's, my sophomore year. And after two years of people asking me to drink, I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. And I think I, my very first drink was like a beer. It was just, it was disgusting. I mean, it was so, it was like Miller Genuine Draft. It was like so, it tasted so bad. <laughs> and they had like some uh, jungle juice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had like some jungle juice. And uh, I'm like, okay, this is cool. It tastes like Kool-Aid. Like, yeah, whatever. So keep in mind at the point, like I'm not educated on how a- alcohol actually affects your body, right. what it actually does to you. I'm just like, oh yeah, it tastes like Kool-Aid. So I'm just like drinking this jungle juice, just jungle juice. And, you know, I end up getting really drunk and just like, I just fall asleep on the floor somewhere. It was at a house party. So it was in a safe space, you know, it was a house party. Uh, I knew everyone in the house. We were all in like a very safe space. And, you know, I woke up the next day very first hangover my first time drinking first hangover and like my head was pounding Mm -hmm. it was just pounding you know my body was obviously dehydrated and so i'm asking my friends i'm like hey is this normal like my head hurts so much and i'm a person that even through playing football i never got headaches so when my head is pounding like to me and i'm very dramatic so i I thought i was dying i'm like (laughs) i'm I'm dying like what's going on they're like oh you just need some water so i'm like okay so I completely, I stopped drinking then. I'm like, oh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm done with this. So what ends up happening is um, I started dating this girl and, you know, she was a party girl and she like, she just loved like to go out. She was very social. And I started drinking again. 
in college, right? Just started drinking again. And like, I knew because of what my parents had, because I saw how alcohol caused them to divorce and really was a catalyst for all the toxic um, things that I experienced as a kid. Like I knew that, like I needed to have a good relationship with alcohol. And I'm actually grateful for my college experience because I got to test what I wanted to do with alcohol. I got to really like ex- experiment with it. And I realized like, I don't really like it. <laughs> I don't I don't really like it. And I don't really like it because I don't like how I act when I when I get drunk. I don't like it because I feel like I act like my parents, you know, and I and I don't like that. So what I ended up doing was I made a vow to myself that if I drink, I, I have to have a good mindset before going into it. You know, so many people drink to escape, to right. leave reality. And I never wanted that. I like I never, ever, ever wanted that. I always wanted to be able to enjoy a drink if it's if I'm in in a good place. And so I feel like I relate to your story so much, brother. Uh, with the alcohol you were dealing with, with the drugs you were dealing with before you got to your meditation class in 2012, your meditation retreat, did you get help? Did you talk to anybody? Did you defeat this on your own? Walk me through how you kind of came to a conclusion that, okay, I need it. I need to change. Yeah. I, um, I, I honestly, I did it on my own. I, um, I didn't like feel even when I was doing everything, you know, in college, like I always knew I was going to eventually stop. I just didn't know when. Um, and I, you know, it was definitely hard at first, like the first like few months, but after a while it became easier. So I, I didn't need to like go to a program or anything like that. Um, when I put my foot down, I really put it down. And, and then, um, but I, I, you know, I'm, I was fortunate in that way. I know. And not to say like, I definitely support and people, people getting whatever help they need. Um, but, um, I was pretty fortunate that I was able to, to move forward from that. I think the cravings were definitely still there, but I wasn't um, allowing them to control my actions anymore in that way. And I think that that first year, you know, that 2011 to 2012, um, that year was like a big preparation year where I, you know, because I was focusing on honesty, because I was actually trying to develop new habits, um, you know, I think that was the year where I got, um, I was introduced to superfoods. And I remember I got this like big tub of barley grass and, I started, you know, taking high nutritional foods because I didn't realize how much nutrition my the meals that I was taking were lacking. And I, th- I started feeling how, you know, after exercising, after eating right, um, my mind would feel clearer. So like that was like a really big boost, you know, because I had mental clarity um, or some degree of mental clarity that really supported me in making better decisions. And, um, and I, I remember that year, I also started spending more time in nature. I started going on hikes. And, um, and that kind of just opened me up to, to being a, a little more ready to go, um, meditate. And then a friend of mine he, during, during the middle of that period, he was traveling in India and he ended up doing one of these, um, silent Vipassana courses. And, um, after he came out, he was, you know, he sent an email to, to me and, um, three other friends and it was all about love, compassion, and goodwill. And I was so surprised, you know, because this is, you know, one of my best friends, someone that I've partied with a lot, you know, that I've, I've seen the other side of him, his like wild side, his funny side, but I've never seen the more profound side of him. 
And this having that really be brought out through this practice, I think it really kind of shined a light in me. And what I thought immediately was, you know, I need some of that, whatever he has, you know, whatever, whatever he experienced, I need to experience that too. And um, so, yeah, I ended up signing up and it was just a very, very like life-changing moment. I think more than anything else, um, after I finished it and I spoke to my friends, the same group of friends, I remember telling them, like, I learned more in those 10 days, you know, you're there silently for for 10 days. Um, I learned more in those 10 days than I had in four years of college. And, And it wasn't like intellectual information, right? You're deriving you're developing wisdom from direct experience. So you're really using another part of your mind that you don't normally use when you're reading and writing and talking. Um, you're actually, you know, being able to develop your awareness, to develop your equanimity. These are other, these are mental faculties that are there in your mind. But if you don't intentionally strengthen them, then they're never going to get stronger, just like any muscle, right? If you don't pay attention to, to developing a particular muscle group, then it's, it's going to continue as it is and probably even atrophy, right? Um, but when I started seeing the results that like, like that was a big shocker to me, Sylvester, was that, that you could actually heal yourself, right? And you could do so in an effective way. And also in a way that, you know, you get big results quickly because I had spent a whole year working on myself alone, you know, like developing honesty, developing these, you know, um, habits. But when I actually learned to practice, a practice that's been working for so many different people, over such a long period of time, you know, this has been around for 2,600 years. Um, And I started seeing like how much better I felt at the end of 10 days of doing it. Um, It was such a shock. Like I literally felt like I had lost a hundred pounds in my mind though. You know, I may have lost like five pounds during the retreat, but I like my mind felt so much lighter. You know, I remember I was able to cry after that. You know, I was able to like feel, I was able to, you know, be much more compassionate, be much more patient. And that was just the the tip of the iceberg because I didn't really understand the technique deeply. I didn't really, um, you know, it felt like a big experiment that I didn't quite understand. I knew I got something out of it, but there's a lot much more that I can gain from it. So I ended up doing another one um, in September because I did the first one in July, 2012. And then the second one I did in September, 2012. Um, and, and then I just kept going, you know, I kept, kept doing courses, a few, few courses a year. And, and over time I just was able to learn this tool to help me truly decondition the mind. And, you know, I have a long ways to go. I still have a bunch of stuff that needs deconditioning, but, um, a lot of these like old habits that I had that caused me and other people so much harm or conflict and whatnot, um, they're not as strong anymore. And also this, you know, that, that pattern that we were talking about earlier, that sadness and that anxiety that was becoming stronger and stronger over time. Like I definitely still feel sadness and anxiety from time to time, but nowhere near to the same intensity as I used to. I want to know about day one of this retreat. So just for the people who are listening, let's get a little clarity. First, what is the name of the meditation practice? It's called Vipassana. Um, okay. It means seeing things as they are. And when, when you get there, you know, you're, you, you basically kind of 
allow yourself to be part of the process. You know, you, you give your phone, you like put away all your valuables and you're basically like for 10 days, you're kind of like a monk and you essentially receive meditation instructions for the whole 10 days. And everyone is, you know, goes through the same process. And then you have teachers there who you can ask questions to, who, um, you know, help clarify things to you. But it's really like, you know, you're really essentially there by yourself because you're not talking that whole time. I mean, you can ask the teachers questions and whatnot, but you're not really, um, you know, you're not intending to make communication with other people, even even though other people are like meditating with you and around you and whatnot. Um, so that that mixture of being alone in that in that space, learning this new practice, you know, and what you're doing there is essentially you're focusing on developing some morality by, you know, you take a vow that during those ten days you're not you're not doing any killing, you know, you don't, you're not killing an animal or anything like that, or anything you may see, you're not doing any stealing, you're not doing any lying, um, you're not taking any intoxicants, and there's no sexual misconduct, you know, so that you're really like living like a monk. Um, and then you're developing that morality. And then on the other hand, you're also developing your, your concentration and your awareness through this practice called Anapana for three days where it just helps you settle and calm the mind so that the mind can be much more focused. And then you, they give you the practice of Vipassana, which is what you're actually there for. And that's a technique that helps you just observe what's happening in the body in a way that helps purify the mind and helps really get all those patterns out and really start that deconditioning process. Now, if you sleep for eight hours and you're up for 16 and you're away at this 10 day retreat, is it I just want to get the I want I want to paint the visual for the people listening. Yeah, sure. Are you meditating for a 16 hour period? Are you able to walk around? Or are you sitting down? Like walk us through like a typical day from like a time frame perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, so normally you're meditating, you know, they ask you to meditate for about 10 hours a day. Um, so there are breaks in there. Um, so the, the morning you'd wake up and you'd wake up at about 4.30, you'd be in the meditation hall, 4.30 in the morning. And then you meditate um, from 4.30 to 6.30. And then between that time, you know, in the beginning, it's pretty hard to like stay put. So you, you're totally allowed to like, you know, walk around or come back or take small breaks and whatnot. Um, but between that 4.30 and 6.30 period, you're meditating. And then 6.30, you have breakfast. But then from 8, from 6.30 to 8, you have a break. Um, you know, you have like basically an hour break after your breakfast. And then from um, 8 to 11 is another three-hour meditation period where you're receiving more instructions. You continue practicing. Then from at 11, you have lunch. And from 11 to 1, you have a break. Um, so a lot of people take that time to like walk outside in the grounds. Um, there's usually these meditation centers are in pretty like, um, you know, areas that are outside cities. So they're, you know, sometimes they're in forests or, you know, places that are, you know, you can, you can go outside and explore. Um, and, or some people take a nap during that time, which is commonly what I do is like rest. And then, um, but from one to five, you have a longer meditation period where, you know, you're receiving more instructions, you continue meditating. And then um, you have another small break from five to six, where 
um, you, you know, you either, so like, that's one thing that's interesting as a, as a new student, you can go in and, um, for, you have a very light dinner of just having some fruits. Um, or if you're an old student, you'll go in and you'll just have some tea. Um, and it's interesting because they're, you know, they don't want you to like, to, to you, the whole point of meditating and something that really helps, not the whole point, but something that really helps is, um, is not having your stomach be too full because if your stomach's way too full, you'll, it'll be really easy for you to fall asleep. So you only want to keep like three quarters of your, of your stomach full. And basically after that break, you have the end, the ending session of the day, which goes from, you know, you do another group meditation from six to seven. And after that, you have about an hour and a half discourse where they're not just giving you instructions, but you're learning from the teacher um, you know, what this technique is about, going more deeply into the theory, connecting it to your daily life, and kind of really talking about like why it is that we're doing what we're doing here. And um, and then after that, there's another small meditation session, probably for about 30, 40 minutes, and and then you go to bed at 9 p.m. And then when you get to your room, is it a shared quarter? You know, is it just a solo room? What's kind of yeah, the room? It depends on the, the meditation center you're at. You know, most ideal meditation centers, they'll, everybody will have a single room. And they're like really, really simple rooms. You know, like you we're talking like the basic necessities. They're, they, are, they are very comfortable, but there's nothing like lavish or you can't like, you know, get a better room or anything like that. Um, sometimes you do share rooms, but it depends on, which meditation center you go to and how developed that center is. And then with the, you're giving your phone up, when you get there, you give up your possessions. Uh, do they ever give you things back? Like say you want to talk to your wife or talk to a kid. Is that a part of it? Or do they just say no? Yeah, that, that they, they ask you to, you know, do your best, like to take care of all of your business, you know, for your family members to know where you are and all that stuff. You can obviously give your, you know, your wife or your kids or whatnot, the, the, the phone number to the actual meditation center that you're at. So in case there's an emergency or something, they can call you and reach you, of course. But the, the point is to do your best to, to just disconnect, right? You, you, we're so good at speaking and talking and writing and being a part of the world. That's not something that we're like bad at, right? That we have a lot of skill in regards to all these interpersonal situations. But you know, being able to be quiet, being able to be with yourself, being able to learn a whole new technique to develop different, you know, aspects of your mind that wouldn't be developed in regular everyday life. Um, to have that, to take that intention and make it into something real and new for your mental experience, it takes a lot of commitment. So they really do ask you to just, um, you know, try your best to, to not communicate with the outside world. And the very first time you went uh, during the summertime, did you have any struggle with that? You know, because that's a pattern. <laughs> it was so hard, man. Talk to me about that struggle. <laughs> it was so hard. So like the first time I went, um, I definitely was not meditating 10 hours a day. Um, I think at most I was doing like five to six hours. And just like I spent probably the first seven days trying to figure out how I was going to run away. <laughs> and, and it was like so mentally difficult. Like I... um. It was a. It really felt like quite a struggle, but I'm so glad that I stuck it through. You know that I that I made it to the end because even though I was having a hard time, the moments that I was practicing, um, I ended up getting so much out of that. And 
after I realized like on day seven, day eight, when I was like, okay, like I'm here, I'm not trying to leave. This is what I'm going to do. Let me try my best. Um, you know, my mind was really able to relax and I, I it was able to like get into the rhythm of the process. Um, but, but it was definitely so difficult, man, because, you know, when you think about it, like we're constantly giving our mind what it wants, right? We're constantly trying to like meet, you know, our wants and needs, but when my mind like, you know, wants to to watch TV and like talk to friends and do all these things. And all of a sudden it's like living like a monk for 10 days. It it just kind of freaks out. So it tries to like take you back to the old world. And that's often what the mind does either way, whether you're like doing a silent meditation course or anything, if you're in the world of personal transformation and you're trying to take that seriously, then your mind is going to put up a little bit of a fight because what it likes to do best is just repeat what it's done in the past. Do you think, here's what I really want to know, between you came home, you did your 10 days, you came home, and then you went back in September. So what was that, that those couple of months like while you were at home, uh, kind of readjusting? And what really made you say, okay, I, I need to do, I need to do this again? Like walk me through kind of that energy right there. Yeah, um, that's an interesting period. I you know, it was such a shock, man. Like I, I, I didn't know that you could really feel better, not on that level. And I remember thinking like immediately after the course was done, I was like, so glad it was done. I wasn't really thinking about going back and I wasn't even meditating every day. You know, I wasn't, I tried to meditate like a little bit and it didn't really work too much. Um, but then after a few weeks, I started noticing, I was like, man, I really feel better. I don't really understand fully what happened. And I know that I could feel more better if I did it. I think that was like the real sort of driving energy there was like, like, I know this kind of worked and I half-assed it, you know, like I didn't, I didn't really put my all into it. So you imagine if I go in and I really try, you know, I could probably get even more results because I did feel better, but there was still, you know, once you start dealing with particular problems um, and you deal with them, you know, they may leave the mind, but then other things come up and there are other sort of deeper layers of more craving, more aversion, more conditioning that you kind of have to embrace, accept and let go of. So I started seeing that, you know, the mind is deep, like it's massive. It's like an ocean. And we really do, you know, we swim on the surface of the mind, but then there's so, so much. So when I started connecting with that reality, I was like, okay, well, it's time to clean up my mind. And um, I just signed back up. I knew it was going to be hard. And the second one was definitely very, very hard, um, but it was also worth it. And then were you, were you working at the time as well? No, I was that time I I had had a job um, where I worked as a, in a bank uh, I was working at a, at a big, I think it was State Street, and I ended up leaving that job um, because it just wasn't the right fit. And I, you know, I wasn't working at that time. I was living in my mom's house and I was really just trying to figure things out. You know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, like in terms of a career, but I knew that before I figured that out, I had to like take care of myself mentally and physically because I just really was not feeling good. So I was really fortunate, you know, my mom just let me come back into the house and, um, and, you know, live under her roof. 
So that was a that was a saving grace. Um, um, your mother, your mother having your back during that time period. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I always, man, I always give it up to my mom and dad. Like any success that I've had, it's just it's just them. You know, it's them. Like the, none of this would have been possible if they didn't make the decisions that they made. If they hadn't brought us to the United States. If they hadn't, you know, picked the city of Boston that we lived in. If they hadn't, like, you know, given me the freedom to figure out what are my my interests and my disinterests and you know, how I should live my life in this world. And I, you know, they were there for me because, and my mom, you know, my mom and my dad, they knew that I was kind of like, I was a mess at that point. And they knew that I, they didn't know how bad I had gotten, but they could just tell that I needed time. And um, I was lucky that they, they were, they didn't force me to, to, you know, do something when I wasn't ready. Okay. And then after that, you're, you're, you're at the house, you're, you're, You've done two meditation retreats. You're starting to to cleanse your energy, feel a lot better. Was your was your wife in your picture yet? Yeah, so I met my wife um, in college. So we we got together when she was 18 and I was 19. So she was a freshman and I was a sophomore. And um, we had been, you know, we just like we were together. Like we felt um, so deeply bonded immediately. And we had come from very, very, very different backgrounds. Um, she was more fortunate than I was. And, um, but we were able to connect on like a, such a deeper level than just identity, you know, just like in, um, we felt like we really needed to be together. So the, the first part of our relationship was, you know, a bit chaotic. Like I was kind of mentioning was, you know, we didn't know ourselves as individuals well. And, you know, we would fight like pretty often. But then once we both started meditating, like I did my first course in July um, and she ended up doing her first course in March. And um, and I think that really kind of started the beginning of the big changes in our relationship where we were able to understand each other better, have more patience, a lot more love um, and have a less like ego filled relationship. Because I didn't realize that back when we used to have arguments, like we were both trying to win. Right. Like we would argue to win. And I started realizing, you know, how foolish that was, because now when we have arguments, neither of us is trying to win. We're more so both trying to understand each other. Like, where are you coming from? You know, like where, like what's happening inside you that's making you feel this way and vice versa. And when we realize that our winning is actually collective and it's like, you know, it's mutual, it has to be mutual, then we both feel a lot better. But it's not in that old way where it's like, you know, if I win, you lose. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one of the pages, one of the chapters in my Free Your Energy book is aimed at talking about argument. Mm. Um, so I studied communications first. I said before I even got to college, I studied communication because I studied my parents and they were doing exactly what you were doing. They were arguing to win. Yeah. And I remember one of my very first notebooks, I wrote down, do not argue to win. And as that thought evolved, what it has evolved to is now in the Free Your Energy book, exactly what I tell people is if you are arguing, the practice of arguing is repeating a cycle where people are not listening. If yeah. you don't have listening involved, you're lacking love. Listening literally is love. Mm -hmm. Giving someone a platform to feel heard creates safety. It creates trust. It creates compassion. And it gives people a space to where they don't have to hold their feelings in. They don't have to hold resentment. They don't have to feel like, hey, I can't speak to you. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the things that I'm really trying to do with my platform is to get people out of the energy of feeling like they need to argue because arguing limits us so much because it's such an egoic thing. It's such a me, like I need to be heard. I need to be felt. They have to see my point of view. But the thing is, is when you can come away from that and you can move more towards a more of a compassionate approach where it's neither one of us need to argue. I want you to be heard and I want to be heard. If I hurt you, I want to know that I hurt you so I can be aware of my behavior. And and, and when, when you just create that that mirror where it's more of a compassion thing. I mean, your life and my life are perfect examples of how that that's not a theory. Like it's it's real life. It works. So anyone listening right now, I, I urge you, if you are in a cycle of arguing in your relationship, that doesn't mean in the relationship. I'm not telling you to do that. What I'm telling you to do is to examine why you're arguing in the first place, because if you can get to the root of why, it's usually I just want to be heard or I'm not being heard. Mm-hmm. Right. And then shift that to, hey, we don't need to fight each other. We don't need to argue. We need to have compassion for each other, hear each other out. You know, one of your brains is usually in most situations, one brain is going to be thinking solution based. That's usually the masculine energy. And then the other brain, usually the feminine energy, is going to be thinking, you know, I want to express what I'm feeling. You know, now I'm not saying it's always that, but that's usually what it is. So what we have to do is accept that it's a dance. It's not a against each other. It's not a race. We're not racing each other. We're dancing together. The masculine and the feminine can dance together. So we can we can literally get rid of all the arguing and our conflicts can turn into bridges for us where we can understand the actual conflict. We can understand ourselves and then we can just move on. It gets it's so easy to let go of that once you attack it the right way and you have the right toolkit. So, man, I'm so glad that you you shared that. That's something that, you know, we've been working here on the Free Your Energy podcast to just really free ourselves um, and from that. And so with your with your wife, with you, you're going through your meditation, she's going through a meditation. You know, a lot of us are, are going to see you as young Pablo, the writer. And, and I know for a fact that people listening, they're seeing you as the man, you know, Diego, they're seeing you for your story right now. And I'm so grateful for that. What I want to know is what happens next? You do these meditations, you're you're living with your mom, you have your girl in your life, and you go through obviously another big transformation. Like what happens next? Um, I actually end up going back to, well, I mean, there's there's like a a bunch of things in there. I remember I started started working, I, I jumped back into the world of activism for a while and um, was working with this really cool group called um, uh, Youth Against Mass Incarceration, and we were a prison abolitionist group, and um, that was really awesome work. And then I was also working for another um, place called Design Studio for Social Intervention, and you know that was when I was kind of like t- like taking time to see like what a career would be like, and and dipping my toes back into the activism world, but then. Um, I felt the big need to like really touch and like get in touch with my roots. And um, so I actually ended up moving to Ecuador with my wife for three months. And um, like I wanted to get to know my grandmother. I wanted to get to know all my aunts and my uncles. Um, you know, I have so many cousins and just this giant family that I haven't really had a chance to spend a lot of time with. So 
um, my wife and I, we decided to get married during that time, um, not in Ecuador, sorry, but in like around 20, I think it was like towards the end, some point in 2012, I asked her to marry me. And we knew we were going to get married at some point, but I, we wanted to spend time with my family so that she could, you know, get to, that I could get to know my family and she could also get to know my family. Um, so that was a really pivotal moment too, where I got to just like, you know, be where my, where my dad grew up and like, you know, spend time there in Ecuador and, and get to get a real feel for what life was like there. Um, and then the, the big, big change was in New, when I moved to New York city. Um, so I think it was in 2014 or 2015, I moved to New York city and, um, and that's when it kind of hit me that, you know, I should spend my time trying to be a writer. Like I knew that, you know, I have so much more left to learn. Like there's so much more that I can continue working on inside of me. But through that process, I felt like a few things were becoming clear and I wanted to start, you know, sharing them through poetry. And at the time, um, Instagram was really popular and I was really, you know, influenced by Rupi Kaur and RM Drake and just seeing them um, put their things out there. And, and I knew, you know, my message is slightly different, but to be able to share these things in images and then, you know, so that people can have them basically. Cause I think the, one of the coolest things about Instagram is that you're basically just giving tons of stuff away for free. And, um, and I think I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, but that's when, when I was in New York, that's when like the idea of young Pueblo really kind of came together, you know, just understanding that, that this name that I kind of came up with is basically a form of social commentary that, when you start really looking at the world, we're all really young. Like it's li we're literally young people. We literally, you know, have so much more to learn, so much more to mature. And I always like that example of when we were in kindergarten, when we first, first got to school, you know, what was it that our teachers were trying to teach us? They were trying to teach us the simplest things, you know, to be kind to one another, to clean up after ourselves, to share, to tell the truth, to not hit each other these basic, basic fundamentals. And now some of us may be able to do these things as individuals, but as a collective human race, right? We don't know how to do these things at all. And these are things that are really essential for our collective well-being. And these are the things that we need to practice and develop. But to be able to do them, more and more people have to mature inside of themselves as individuals. And to be able to mature and grow and to, to be happier and to be freer it's going to take internal work and that's going to look different for different people. You know, it could be therapy, it could be meditation, it could be some sort of introspective practice or another, but we can all be a little happier. We can all be a little freer. We can all be, you know, have more inner peace and more mental clarity. So for every individual, right, our conditioning is very different. We've all had very different stories, but we can definitely all feel better and be happier. And that in turn will help the world for sure. I want to talk to you as a creator, right? We're both creative people. Yeah. Um, a lot of people who listen to the Free Your Energy podcast are very creative as well. So let's touch base with creativity. So I'm about to take you take you back, okay? Uh, and for those that don't know, um, the way we got connected is, it, it's actually funny. You, you followed me on Instagram um, and I saw you follow me and I didn't know who you were at the time. You were still growing, like we're both still growing. And so I clicked on your page and I was looking at your writings and I'm just like, Oh yeah, I like this. Like, I, this is this is right up my alley. <laughs> uh, and so we've been connected for a couple of years now. I feel like maybe two or three. Yeah. 
yeah, like a couple years mm-hmm. and uh, always supporting, you know, sharing each other's work, liking and commenting, always supporting, um, you know, and, and we've been in touch. And so it's really cool to as a creative to to connect with with other people, uh, even if you're not on the exact same journey, but just to watch other people and to watch them grow. So I'm going to take you back. We're going to go to January 6, 2015. There's a post on here that says the person that is whole, the person that can see beyond as well as they can see within the person that loves all beings. This person cannot harm or be harmed. Do you remember writing that? Yeah. Yeah. That was way back. That was in, uh, when I was living in Brooklyn and crown Heights. Um, and I think that was like my first year in New York city. Um, and that was when I was slowly like growing in this Vipassana practice and realizing that if you were really growing, right, if you were really trying to develop your wisdom, then that automatically means that your love is slowly becoming unconditional, right? If you're actually having self-love for yourself, you know, real self-love, then that's automatically going to open the door to love for all beings, and there's a way to do that, you know, without harming yourself, without harming others. And when you're able to grow in that love, it just makes it so that, you know, you can't harm, right? Unconditional love is a space where harm cannot enter. And to me, it's just, you know, being able to connect all of those things together was really important at that time. As a creator, one thing I pay attention to is, I mean, just like you, I'm sure, is every little detail. Um, as an author of eight books, I can tell you that I've used different fonts, different color pages, different alignments. You know, I know I know I'm talking right right up your alley. Mm-hmm. I noticed on your page because I followed you for years now. So I've been able to observe you went through a couple of different fonts and then you found a font that you like. You found a format, uh, <laughs> kind of center aligned format. Yeah, yeah. And I have uh, where did it go? Hold on. I, I have my phone here. So I have the the date from when you transitioned from your last font to the one you're on now. Mm-hmm. And very, very interesting. This is going to blow you away. So March 14th, 2017, that was the last time you used your old font, okay? <laughs> what, you, what you posted, you need to repost, my brother. It says, yeah, what is send, it? send positive thoughts to difficult situations. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the very next one. So this is on the new font. This is March uh, 15th, 2017. It says the beauty of self-love is that it can grow into unconditional love that can end all harm. Right. And I just, I just feel like those two things are so timely for today. Mm-hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about writing is it's timeless. I know. It's just... It, I think that's one of the most exciting things about it is like, it's fun, you know, even like w- what you're doing now, like people going back and, you know, pieces that we have written and just, you know, going back to like the, that, the old archive and connecting with something that was made in a particular moment in time, but things just hit people differently. And I think that's one of the most beautiful process, beautiful things about being a creator. With you, you tend to share your post in the morning. You're on the East Coast time. Um, so typically, I'll see your post come in around, like, I think, 8, 8 a.m., 9 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Walk, walk 
me through your process for how you how you create a post, how you share a post. Yeah. So I um so I normally, you know, I played around with it for a while. I remember during that early era of like 2015, sometimes I would post twice a day, but then I realized that posting once a day was best from for my life and also I think for my audience. You know, they a lot of people got to see um if you if you put too many posts up at once and it's going to be a little hard for people to see them. And also Instagram has gone through a lot of changes. Like I remember during 2015, we didn't have that algorithm. And then eventually that big switch came that kind of really changed the game for how things work. Um, but I normally post at somewhere between 9.30 and like 10.15 um, East Coast time. And my thought around that, it was pretty simple. is like by 9.30 to 10, people are normally already going to be at work and they're already going to be kind of settled in. And, um, and that may be the time that, you know, someone first kind of turns over and starts looking at their phone. Or, you know, if you're at home, you're up, you're awake, and you're like starting to go about your day. And that may be the time that, you know, you start, you know, checking to see what's going on or looking for a bit of inspiration. And um, I've kind of stuck to that time for like two years now. And it's, it's worked well. And, you know, maybe that may change in the future. Um, even with the quarantine now, I've switched the time to be a little later. Now I post like at like 10, 15, 10, 30, or maybe even a little later, just because like um, the, the pattern is different now. People are just like, you know, <laughs> the, the way our lives are now are so radically different. But, um, but it's, it's, um, it's a process that's, you know, pretty simple because I've, you know, like you and I, like we're, we're like, we create a lot. Like we, we make, we make a lot of things. Um, so sometimes I kind of check the vibe of the day and see how I feel. And then I'll either post something that's, that, um, you know, that I posted maybe like four or five months ago, or I'll, you know, take a moment to write something new. So one thing I, I don't do is like, I don't force myself to write every single day. Um, but a lot of days I do feel that energy and I'm like, okay, like, let's see what's, you know, happening in my mind or something really clearly comes up, I'll try to um, write that down. And, um, but I just try to keep it as simple as possible. And, you know, I put it in the simple black and white format and, um, and post it up. And then, you know, we see how it goes. You don't post much of yourself. You only have maybe two or three videos of you uh, speaking um, about some of the things you're writing about. Yeah. Why is that? Um, I think because... For me, that's not what it's about, right? Like, I, I don't really want, like, I don't want slash need my face to be popular. Um, and that's just, like, my own personal decision. Like, people can do whatever they want. Like, um, but for me personally, I really want it to be about the message. And um, I think when when there is, like, something big that's happened and I let people know, um, and if it includes a picture of me, then so be it, or a video, but um, I really just like the the little bit of anonymity that one the young pueblo name gives me, right? Because a lot of people they know young pueblo, but they don't necessarily know Diego. Um, and two, it's it's nice to just you know like live my private life and not be worried about trying to capture you know what special thing I did that day or making a lot of videos of myself and stuff like that. Because it's already one thing to like to be creative in the writing sense, but it would. I think it would add too much in my plate to be actively trying to give a piece of my life every day. Um, and to me, it just feels like that's, it feels a little sacred, you know, to just keep some things private. And, um, 
yeah, it feels like the right thing to do. I totally hear you. I respect that. That's that's one thing that, you know, I have a son, you know, I have a son and you know, me and my girl, we've been together for about uh, five years now. And mm. one of those things that I don't, I don't want to share that it's such a sacred thing, like yeah. becoming a father is so sacred. And there's been so many emotions that have came to me and so much uh, learning. Like I, I don't want to share that with people. It's not really your business. Like I don't want to, mm-hmm. I like, I don't mind talking about it on the podcast, you know, right, cause this right. is, this is more of a, like, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of like the way the channel was set up for here on a podcast. This is, this is genuine. This is long form. This is conversation. This is authentic. Yeah. Whereas I look at like the Instagram channel, it doesn't really feel that way. No, it's curated. <laughs> it's curated. And I actually posted that last night. And I read the that. reason I saw that. <laughs> you know, I posted that last night. And, and I wanted to let people know, like, that was actually my way to say that this is actually, and I don't post pictures of myself much. I would, I would prefer to uh, post videos. I like posting videos because mm-hmm. one thing that I realized is the same message can be told from a million different people and they may not get it. Yeah. But if you're able to explain the message or if you're able to attach a story behind the message, then people can get it in a different light. And that's where I'm at. I'm at a point where, you know, I'm an author of eight books. I've been, I, I always wanted to be a writer, you know, so I have thousands of posts and, you know, I used to do uh, blog articles and I used to do all that stuff. And so for my transformation is like, my thing is I want to transform my writings into an audio format where I'm talking, where I'm, where I'm giving the stories. Like that's really like my next evolution. Right. So for my content is going to be my writings and videos. And so last night I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know what? I want to do like, and, and, you know, we writers, we do these like little subtle things where we don't actually tell you what we're doing. <laughs> but this was like, I wanted it to be the last time I ever posted an image of myself online. Unless it was like one of those things you say where it's like a big, big deal, big thing going on. Yeah. Then, then yeah. And it was like a closure thing for me where I was like, hey, this is the last time you guys are going to see any picture of me from now on. It's just going to be, you know, videos, obviously, <laughs> me talking, you know. So... I would love to collaborate with you, man, somehow, some way um, that will work for us, um, whether that's writing, writing, a, you know, some book or writing some posts, doing maybe a video series. Like, I would love to just collaborate with you and just co- create and, and just just take it like this. This is awesome. But I want to go to another level with you. Yeah, no, this is really special. It's so nice to be able to really talk and just go deep together. And it's nice to see the parallels of our story. And I'm, I'm sure we can cook something up together. Um, and it's just so, it's such an interesting time to like take that creativity to a new level because the constraints of the moment are real, right? Like, I feel like the way the internet works now is a bit different because when quarantine happened, like the internet, like everything just became inundated. You know, like everybody started posting, everybody's going live, everybody's pushing out content. So um, I think when that moment happened, what I actually did was I took a big step back and I was like, okay, let me first make sure that I'm okay, make sure that my family's okay, and kind of deal with the immediate things that me and my wife, you know, we have the food we need, the protection we need, um, especially being in New York City. So I kind of took a step back and, you know, I continued posting my daily posts, but I wasn't like jumping to to make a lot of content. But now that I feel like my um, my own feet feel a little balanced, 
Um, I'm definitely open to creating more things. And actually, I think I'm hoping the next thing that we could probably do is I could have you on my podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell us about your podcast. So, yeah, that's something that I'm cooking up right now. Um, it should come out sometime in the next uh, month or two. And um, I'm going to start doing the recording soon. But I've just been working, you know, trying to get everything set up and um, make it happen. And, I, you know, I, I grappled with it. And I'd love to hear your your thoughts behind why you opened up to the podcast venue because one you know like i was saying i did like really like keeping the anonymity but i also felt the constraints of the instagram platform which i felt are fantastic but at the same time we can't go deep like this you know um to be able to really talk to be able to feel free to you know speak for longer than five minutes and not just speak to have sound bites you know, to, but speak to like, to, 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 you know, hear each other's stories and to be able to connect really profoundly like this. So I thought, um, you know, there are other sides of me outside of personal development and getting to know the minds, you know, I, I'm, I really like history. I really like economics. I spend most of my time thinking about the future of the world and what that's going to look like structurally, you know, like how can democracy evolve? How can we become, you know, not only better people, but have everything that has been, healed inside healed inside of us reflect into our actions in a way that helps us make a better world um so i decided okay let me let me do like one season of a podcast and see how that goes and that's one thing that i really um kind of stay stay firm to you know i'll try something i'll see how it goes and if i feel like it's not really working then that's fine we can get rid of it so i'm gonna give it a shot but um but yeah what what made you want to do this Man, so what it was, people were telling me, and you know, I started sharing my writing back in 2013. Um, so I was one of the first quote unquote writers on Instagram. I had a book out before I ever got on social media. My book came out in 2012. And I think growing up, I always wanted to be a writer. That was like my angle. I wanted to be a writer and a professional football player. Those were my two angles. And when you be I guess when you reach a certain point. And you get to a certain point, you that point evolves you. And writing books, like I don't want to say this because I don't want to disrespect anybody else's journey because there are a lot of authors who follow. But writing books to me is easy. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's easy to me because I have practiced writing every day for years. Like right. I, I used to have a two thousand word requirement where I would practice two thousand words every day, and literally I'm just practicing putting words together. Right. Um. Like you, I've studied, I've studied my posts. I've studied my books. I know exactly what people want to hear, mm-hmm. you know? And for a while, uh, cause there's some of my content from years ago that I don't like, and I don't have a good relationship with it because there was a time where I was creating for, Hey, let me create this for you because I know this is what you want. Right. Just to make hits. <laughs> right. Just to make a hit, just to get it to go viral, just to, you know, and I think all creators go through that, but like I had to be honest with myself. Like that is that is limiting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I think even musicians go through that. They're like, hey, if I make this song, it's gonna get me on Billboard. But if I make this song, this is genuine to me, right? And it's like that's the great paradox that all artists go through. It's yeah. like, you know, how do I how do I stay genuine to me and create what feels good to me? But then also how do I appease my fans and give them something that you know, is really going to help them. And I came to the conclusion because I tested this one day. I I like writing long 
you know, long thoughts. I love, you know, I love long form, long thoughts. I like explanations. I like stories. Like I really, even when people tell me they're like, you know, like, okay, for example, um, politics, let's say someone says, Hey, you know, America is having an election and I like Joe Biden or someone says, Hey, I like Donald Trump. Well, my reaction isn't how I feel about it. My reaction is, okay, tell me why. Like, mm-hmm. tell me more. Mm-hmm. Like, I really want to hear your psychology. I want to hear your connection. Right. Like, I really want to hear it, you know? And what ended up happening is, I mean, we both do the same thing. It's like, you'll see a post, you'll create a post, you'll, you know, and it'll be a, just a short little quote. And then you go to post it and it's just like, oh, no, wait a minute. Like, I have this this other thought that goes with it. And you write this long caption and then you get to the end of the caption and you're like, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I need, I need a little more space here. Like, I'm, not, I, I'm not done yet, Instagram. Hold on, you know? And then you're like, oh, crap. Okay, let me delete some of this. And, mm-hmm. and, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, no, wait. Now they're not. I needed that one paragraph. You know, it's just, it's limiting. You know, Twitter, 280 characters. Yeah. You know, Instagram, limiting. I have 500,000 people follow me, 50,000 people see a post, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh so it's such a limiting way. And, and for me, creativity is not supposed to be limited. And that is what draw me to the podcast p- platform because I just have so much to say and I have so much to learn. And there's so many things that I want to learn about. Like we couldn't, we how could we have done this on Instagram? Right. Even on the Instagram live, they cut you off after 59 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to have a conversation with you and, and, and other people with, without getting likes. You know, that's my problem with Instagram Live. I don't want to see all your hearts and likes and, you know, I appreciate it, but I want to have a real, like, genuine conversation. And I think people want that as well. And oh, they that are. was one. Yeah, they definitely are. Podcasts are so big. It's incredible. Yeah, that's what that's what really caught me to it. When I realized, when I went inward and I realized, hey, this is going to be the platform for me where I can be myself where I could share things about my personal life that are sacred to me because I would like to share some things, but I want to do it in a way that's genuine to me. And then there's no likes here. There's no likes on the podcast. There's no likes. It's just, you just get the content, you listen to it or you don't. Mm -hmm. There's no likes. Mm -hmm. There's no algorithm. Listening is a choice. And I'm a person who believes in free will. So for me, the podcast just felt like total freedom as a creative total freedom. Um, and that's why, that's why I came on here. And I've been, I started it in 2018, you know, and at this point, you know, I'm like a best-selling author. My books are, you know, really blowing up and doing well, but it wasn't, it didn't feel like enough for me. Like the, the, the books, it did, it felt limited because I wanted to be able to speak to people. I wanted people to be able to feel me and like hear me and just, you know, develop that connection. Like the same connection we have with musicians. It's mm-hmm. like, we hear their voice. We hear their voice. And so there's just like a different, there's like a different vibrational frequency of connection because you can hear a person's voice. You can, you can, feel, I've cried on this podcast, you know, I've, mm-hmm. I've shared emotions. I'm not crying on Instagram. Why would I do that? <laughs> <laughs> now that I think that's really inspiring for me to hear, honestly, because it, I've, I've come to understand that like constraints, they could help you produce really beautiful art. Because it kind of simplifies the process. You know, if you only have 28, 280 characters, it's like, okay, what can I do within this very tiny space? But then at the same time, like having that free ability to just be organic, you know, like when I came on today and I, well, we started talking, like I had no idea what was going to happen. 
And that was, that was great. Um, I think that type of flexibility is like, it creates an even potentially even more special art that could happen because it's just, you know, it's not curated. It's not anything um, that was really thought out beforehand, but I think it could really make a lot of magic. I think that's why I'm also going to go into it too and just, you know, see what happens. And if it works great, if it doesn't work, that's fine too. I like how you're doing um, a season. And I think, I think going into it with that doesn't make it like daunting. You know, some people want to start a podcast and then, they put the pressure on themselves of, hey, I need to do a, see- a episode every week and I need to. And I think the season gives you the ability to just like get your feet wet, see how you feel about it, you know, see see what works, doesn't work. Um, the platform that I'm using now to record our podcast, it took me a, a year and a half to find. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the easiest things for me because my whole thing is I want to streamline creativity. Like I don't want to be doing stuff that's stressful breaking my back i just don't i really don't you know i want it to be a fun process right um at this platform they make it pretty easy um they can just record the channels there's a mixing and mastering act after so it makes it it makes it really uh, the sound quality really good and then what i do is i'll just drop it down into uh one more audio program after i just do an intro i have some music um, that i curated i just put some the intro on there and that's it and then I schedule it, and that's it, man. That's and amazing. It's total peace of mind. Yeah, so I can help you with that if you need help on the, hey, on the back. Hey, you know, I got to thank you too, man, because I remember when I was first going on, and I, I definitely know you're one of the pioneers, you know, for popular poetry. That's what that's what Lang, um, Lang Lave kind of named it, the thing that we do, you know, it's pop poetry. And um, I feel like, you know, without you kind of opening that door, um, a lot of us wouldn't be here today, man. So thank you for being bold enough to share your stuff at that that very beginning. Yeah, man. I've never had anybody say that to me. That is, I'm just like, I got the chills just hearing you say that. You know, can I tell you a quick story too, man? So I, I had to, I got to speak to somebody who was one of the first hundred people who worked at Instagram. And he, he told me, right, he was like, we had no idea that people would be sharing words. Like they, they did not see memes coming. They did not see poetry coming. They did not see any of this stuff coming. And I think that's like super special, but it took people like you to like, you know, actually make it happen. Cause I, I was, I, I consider myself like a second generation Instagram writer. Cause I saw other people do it, you know, like you and Rupi and, you know, RM Drake. And I was like, all right, let me, you know, let me put my hand in there. I'm about to put you on. I'm about to put you here in the in the uh, in the torture chamber here. I'm about to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it, but I'm going to ask you: Are there any writers that you've seen that you just you're just you don't have to say a name, but you're just like, oh no, I don't I don't like this at all. Like I don't like maybe their message, maybe they're just like abusing the platform. Like, have you experienced that that side of it where you're just oh, like, oh, I wish they? Yeah, I don't think I don't honestly no writer in particular. Um, cause like, you know me, like I, I like to keep to myself, but I think the general trend that I see that, um, isn't too great, but I guess it's just a common thing is just like mimicking. Um, and that mm. when people do that, you know, where they're kind of like when one idea becomes really prevalent and everyone starts saying that same thing in like slightly different words and then nobody kind of owns it, you know, nobody like it just, I think that that level of mimicking, I think it's fine. Like I definitely see where it comes from, but at the same time, I think 
it could be a little unhealthy because then we kind of start just like saying the same thing over and over again. So that's one thing that I really kind of do my best to step away from. If I feel like one topic is kind of like over talked about or something, then I'm like asking myself, well, what am I thinking about? That's different from the internet. Um, At the same time, right? Nobody owns a topic. So everyone is allowed to write about it. And um, that's totally fine. But I think you you probably know like the, the mimicking that happens where like people are just saying the same exact sentence kind of like over and over, you know? Yeah. And there's such a duality there because it's like, we're all allowed to explore whatever we want to explore. Right. And then it's like, we're allowed to be inspired by others, but when it's a, Hey, I'm going to go to your page. I'm going to see what you post. Oh, you posted that. Oh, that, that performed well. Okay. I'm going to do the same thing. And it's, it's one of those things where I guess there's no one you know, policing it. There's so no, you, there's you no Instagram referee. <laughs> yeah, there's no reps out here. But as a as a creator, you know, you know, like if if I go to someone's page and I see, I've seen this before. So I had this quote, um, and at my brain, I have a photographic brain, photographic memory. So I had this quote, um, and I'll tell you, man, I used to, I was a hopeless romantic a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I used to write you know, she, you know, and I was writing about a very specific she, you know, I'm, I'm a very like hopeless romantic lover. Like I watch romance movies. I'm all into that. I'm working on a novel, you know, I'm into that. And I have this quote, it says, um, it says, (laughs) it says she deserves to be with the, I don't even remember what it says. It says she deserves to be with a man Basically, it was a it was a paradox quote. And I was saying, don't don't be with the boy who kind of likes you. Be with the man who knows that he needs his soul next to yours. That's the quote. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, that quote came from a conversation with my lady. Like it was a genuine thing. Right. And so I, I quote, it was genuine to me. And next thing I know, I log on Instagram two hours later to you know log back in and to interact with people. And the quote is on other writers' pages, but my name is not on it. Like they, they literally took the same quote that I posted and they chopped my name off. Yeah. And I, this was one of the very first times I felt a certain way about it because the person who did it was bigger than me. <laughs> you know, I don't know mm-hmm. if you experienced that. You're quote unquote big yourself. So, you know, this it's person was bigger than me. It's definitely happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know how to like, I didn't know how to react to that because it was creativity that was inspired from a genuine place, from a genuine moment with my girl. And then that same day it was stolen. Literally it was stolen. And this other writer was passing it off as if they created, you know, this quote. Wow. And it was that moment that I, and I haven't done it since then. I I removed the pronouns from my writing. Like Mm she, her, Mm -hmm. I completely, the pronouns i say hey i'm not doing it anymore i'm not writing about she or her which i know is a popular thing to do um that was like three years ago and let me tell you that changed my career like the three books that i've put out since then have been the best three performing books like from a sales perspective but also from an impact to my readers right and it was like that moment where I was faced with like those unruly emotions. Like it literally changed my whole career and how I present my content. Have you had something like that happen to you where writers have maybe like stole your work or tried to pass off your words as their own other than the mimicking thing? 
Um, I've had, I mean, I've seen a lot of like, you know, my quotes and then the, my name gets chopped off from under it and then it kind of just like spreads. And, um, my thought is, you know, one is okay. Yeah. That, that doesn't feel great. But then the other end, I always think about Nayira Wahid and, um, like she's an amazing writer and she never put her name under her quotes. So I take a lot of inspiration from that. And I'm like, you know, if my quote, if my word, if my, sorry, if my name isn't under there, then hopefully, or in some way, you know, people will generally recognize like, this is the type of, this is the way I normally write and whatever credit is due will come back to me in some form. And I also just think about the law of nature, like, you know, let me not worry about it too much. If something like that is done maliciously, let me just focus on doing good and, and doing the right thing on my end. Like I remember there was one time, um, I wrote something and then someone else wrote something very similar and, you know, I don't know which one came first, right? Like, I, you know, I, I didn't know, like, did I write it first? Did they write it, write it first? So what I ended up doing was I never shared that quote again. And to me, it was like, you know, I don't even want to open the conversation because I don't want to be accusing anyone because like, who, who, you know, what do I know? Like all throughout history, there are examples of like spontaneous ideas happening at the same time, but that, um, you know, kind of just motivated me to like, you know, it's, it's fine. It's just one little piece and I can keep creating. So I don't, I don't try to worry about it too much, to be honest. Yeah. I feel the same way. Um, I had those, that experience. And then I had another one where one of my most famous quotes, which literally I wrote this in the book first, and then it came out on the internet later and people credit it to Bruce Lee and Warren Buffett. And it's, yeah, and I'm like, wait a minute, I wrote that. Like uh, I was literally on my balcony. Bruce Lee didn't say that, you yeah. know, it's just like, it's the quote that says, uh, you will continue to suffer if you allow everyone, if you have an emotional uh, outburst, it, that quote. And it's like, it went viral. People credit it to Warren Buffett and Bruce Lee. And it's like, at first I was really mad because I'm like, Hey, like, these are my words. Like, I, I appreciate Bruce Lee. Like that man, he he had influence in my life. I appreciate yeah. Warren Buffett, but that's not his. And that really helped me. Um, it really helped me grow to a place where I just have to have like abundance mindset and I just have to keep creating. And I can't worry exactly. about like once you let it go, you let it go. And whatever happens to it happens to your art. You know, you can't mm-hmm. control how mm-hmm. people interpret it how they manipulate it you genuinely cannot i mean what are you gonna do go take people's phones out of their hands and say no that's mine give it back you know like exactly and why why your energy right like at the end of the day what matters most is your intention and if you didn't intend to do any harm and you're trying to actually help people then that's going to come back to you in some form or another so to anybody listening um you're hearing two authors who both are popular in their own rights our work gets stolen, so don't let that don't let that don't let deter it stop you. you. Yeah, don't let it stop You're you. Bad. Just keep creating, you know. Keep creating. So, what's the rest of this year going to look like for you? Um, obviously, Corona has changed everything for everyone. But what what do you have planned? Um, I so right now I'm in the middle of finishing my second book. Um, so I'm like I'm doing basically very little of anything else because I have a deadline coming up um, in a few months and I'm trying like really trying to hunker down and just focus in on this book and put it together very nicely so that it's, you know, something that people really find useful. Um, and that's the main name of the game. And then outside of that, you know, I'm working on this podcast and then other potential writing projects that I'm going to have um, down the road. 
But um, a lot of this year, especially these next couple of months, it's going to be a lot of writing. And because um, I'm really trying to, you know, I do have more books inside me and I'm trying to, especially while the world is quiet and, you know, events aren't happening and all of that, it just feels like for me, it's the perfect time to, you know, keep meditating, keep writing and just keep growing. So walk me through, um, obviously, Corona is different than every other day, but think of a just a normal day. What's like a normal day for you? Kind of walk me through your day. Um, so normally I, you know, I wake up in the morning and um, I'll check to see what's going on on the Internet. I'll um, either meditate before I post or I'll meditate right after I post. So I'll always uh, meditate for an hour in the morning. And then after that, you know, after I've posted, I'll um, I'll either do some writing or do a lot of, you know, answering emails and kind of like doing the administrative side of this work, which I think is like a pretty big side, you know, like looking at different contracts or different like events that you're trying to set up or, you know, just dealing with future projects. Um, but I'll do a lot of that in the middle of the day and um, and kind of just keep working until about like five. And after that, then I spend time with my wife. And um, at some point in the evening, we'll meditate again for another hour and just, you know, make dinner and, 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 you know, probably watch like a few shows or something and then go to bed. But I keep it really simple. You know, um, every, every, every day that I have is always demarcated by two hours of meditation, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening, and then essentially a bunch of work in the middle. So you have a really good, good flow and a really good pattern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It took time. About, to, well, it took time, but what about uh, things that kind of get you off that uh, traveling? How often do you guys travel? Um, pre pre Corona, how often were you guys traveling? We were traveling really often, and um, I think that was one of the probably a pretty difficult challenge that I had to overcome was how to be creative when I was on the road um, because I didn't like I didn't realize how much traveling sucked up your energy. And um, mm-hmm. you know, being totally external, looking outward and kind of, you know, being present in the areas that I was in um, made it, you know, difficult so that I was tired, but like in a different way where like I just didn't have that creative flow. And I found that I'm much more creative when I'm just still when I'm like, you know, not traveling too much or when I stay in one city for a long time or when I'm just home in New York. Um, that really helps a lot. But um yeah, I think we, you know, we we figured out how to handle it pretty well and try to stay as healthy as we can. But generally, it um, I'm these days I'm preferring to like to just not do so many events as before, um, and just focus on the quality of the content that I'm producing. Our stories are so aligned, and like some of the transformations, like the inner transformations we've had. They're almost happening at the same time because I feel the exact same way. You know, for about six years, uh, I did over 50 events and just getting on the airplane and traveling and speaking to people. And I actually don't really want to do that. Um, it, it's not really I mean, I can't say forever. Yeah. But at the present at the present moment, I really am just going inward and just creating. Like I just want to create right now. I just want to create. Uh, you know, I'm working on my ninth book. Um, I have two courses. Um, do you have any courses out? No, no, no. I, I, I really like, um, I don't really think of myself as a teacher, to be honest, man. Like I, I think of myself as an, as an explorer and I don't get me wrong. I do enjoy talking, talking, you know, like with you about all these different topics and with other people. But, um, 
I don't like put out courses and such. Um, I think I think in the future I may put out like a series of videos where I talk about different topics with someone else, um, but not necessarily like in in the teacher mode. Teacher mode. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a, if you ever need help with that, you let me know. Uh, I'm more than willing to come out here and create, or if you want to come out here to Arizona, um, there's space for you and your wife here. So you just, you just let me know if you need help. You also got to let me know when you're in the city, man. It'd be great to chop it up in person soon. My girl has never been to New York and I had a little time period where I was in New York quite a bit. It was right around 2013. Um, my really good friend, his name is Joe. He was a writer. And he used to live in Long Island. So I actually spent a, a summer out in Long Island with him. And it was awesome, man. We were we took we took the train into the city and he took me around. And like I really got to be in New York for three to four months. Um and it was a great it was a great time. It was a great the summer was great. I wouldn't go there in the winter. I can't <laughs> Yeah, it's really cold there in the winter. So um, how do you deal with winter? How, does it affect your mental health at all? How do you deal with it? To be honest, you know, it really doesn't. Like, um, I think over time, I've realized how much my perception is what's controlling my reactions. And if I'm perceiving things in a way that's like really negative, then of course, you know, I'm not going to feel good. But if I'm always trying to include as a part of my perception, the fact that everything is impermanent, you know, so this dreary day is also impermanent. So instead of making tension around it, let me just let it pass. And um, I kind of take that as a general rule for everything. And that allows me to just be way, way, way more okay with the changing movement of things. And to that, you know, it's it's interesting because I think when people think about impermanence, you know, they worry that, oh, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll like be cold hearted or something like that. But in reality, it's like, no, it's like if when you connect with impermanence, you're able to have so much more presence. And when you're able to have that much more presence, you can come forward with a lot more compassion with what's happening in the moment so that you can, you know, deal with things in a much more loving and understanding way. Like what you were saying earlier about how listening is love, like that's so, so true. And, but how are you going to be able to listen if you're not present? Man, such a powerful thinker, explorer. Thank you so much, Diego, for your time. Uh, My friends, I want you to find him on Instagram at Young Peblo. And then he has a book that is so inspirational. It's called Inward. Uh, so just tap in. And once that podcast is out, we'll we'll jump over there. My listeners will jump over there and we will we will listen and support you on your podcast journey. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for, for listening to the Free Your Energy podcast.